0: Welcome to the Calgary Zone integrated quality management podcast series. The global team of integrated quality management in the Calgary Zone that brings together four teams that support improvement in zone-based health services. Patient and family-centered care supports the development and implementation of patient and family-centered care approaches within the Calgary Zone. In today's episode, we have Deb Runnels, consultant with the Calgary Zone Patient and Family-Centered Care Team, with guest Sherry Monk, primary care paramedic with Alberta Health Services.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Calgary Zone Integrated Quality Management Podcast. My name is Deb Runnels, my pronouns are she, her, and I work as a consultant with the Calgary Zone Patient and Family-Centered Care Team. I'm so honored to be joined today by a wonderful. Digital, Sherry Monk, who works as primary care paramedic with Alberta Health Services. She's also the co-chair for the Alberta Health Services Proud Together. Thank
0: you for having me, Deb.
1: So Sherry, we're going to dive into some questions today about the intersection of patient family-centered care and LGBTQ2 plus health. For our listeners, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, and two-spirited plus. But before we do that, I'd love if you could introduce yourself so that the listeners can just get to know you and who you are a little bit.
0: My name is Sherry. I use pronouns she, her. I live in Redcliffe, which is a small town, basically attached to Medicine Hat. And I work full-time in Medicine Hat as a primary care paramedic. My wife, Alyssa, uh, works as an advanced care paramedic and an acting supervisor out of Brooks in South Central Zone. So we've had some interesting and not always you know, awesome experiences being two women that are we're married in the Southern Alberta. Pride isn't super visible and there can be some challenges living and working in this area. So we're both trying to do our part to make it easier and better for everybody else. And that's why I became involved in proud together and why I'm here today. And AHS has been super supportive. I think a big part of what I respect about AHS's commitment to diversity and inclusion is that it comes with the recognition that everything isn't perfect today and that there are issues that we have to work together as a team to improve because I think that in order for the hard work to happen, you need to have that acknowledgement that the hard work is needed. So sometimes when we see big diversity and inclusion initiatives, sometimes I've seen corporations go in blind a little bit. There's definitely problems in the world, but we've got it really great right here. But I think the, the honesty around dealing with the challenges that we have is what will ultimately make things better.
1: Thank you so much for that, Sherry. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I really appreciate just your, your honesty and transparency and sharing kind of what we've got and how hard as an organization we've worked to be where we are and also to help set direction as we move forward. So in consideration of that, what does patient family-centered care mean to you both personally and in relation to your work and your work experiences?
0: Yeah, so it's, it is, I do have that um, sort of overlap because I've obviously experienced the healthcare system and any kind of systemic system as uh, both a patient or a user, as well as a healthcare provider. And I think overwhelmingly what I've taken away from it is that we need to have an open concept of what patient and family-centered care means, because it's, it's defined by the patient or the uh, person that is using the system or trying to access it rather than the healthcare provider. So every day we go into work and we we leave our own situation, our own families, our own houses, whatever that may look like. And we bring that into the workplace um, and we're going with our first person experience of how we deal with the world. And I think patient and family-centered care is sort of leaving that at home and being really open to what somebody else's idea of what is a family, what is the kind of care that I need, because that's going to vary wildly individual to individual.
1: I so agree. I think that what you said is just so critically important within our healthcare system as a big system, but it's made up of humanity, whether it's those providing care or those receiving care and empowering those receiving care to determine what is their definition of family? What does that look like? I think that's so important. So thank you so much for raising that and pointing that out because it is so critical. does bring forward kind of the issue of what is that safe environment and we so often think safety is about what's happening physically but safety can be so much about emotional safety. With regards to family presence how can AHS staff advocate and build a safe environment when serving their community and especially the LGBTQ2 plus community? What are some ways that AHS can really truly and authentically serve this community?
0: I think for one of the biggest things I think we can do is just to ask who are your people? What do you need to feel safe and supported? what can I do to make you feel safe and supported? So sometimes we want to just be able to have a phrase, a catchphrase, or to do something that will be a one size fits all. And that's just not the case. And the other thing I think that we need to think about when we're thinking about patient and family-centered care is that some of these patients are so marginalized that they may not have people in their lives that behave like, like family, that we would think of as family being supportive and there for you and present in your life and wanting to know if you've had an emergency that requires the healthcare system. Some people are very marginalized, whether it's they've recently come out or they came out 20 years ago and they just were never, that family was never safe or present again. So even when we're, we're trying to figure out what do these patients need and what do they want? Sometimes the even the assumption that they have a family that would want to be notified or that they would want notified, sometimes that's a misstep. So I think just starting with a clean slate with every single patient, trying to leave our assumptions at the door and just asking flat out, what do you need so that I can make this experience as positive as possible for you? Because ultimately we want a good patient outcome. The patient wants a good patient outcome. And if we can start off the right foot, and I think sometimes that's a refreshing question to be asked. And it may take somebody a few moments to gather that information because it may be the very first time they've ever been asked it
1: absolutely is so critical and when we're looking at some of the barriers that just naturally occur when we don't know how to respond when we don't know how to talk to someone and that's about us not being prepared in the ways we should be I think what you said around the invitation to ask the invitation to start that relationship with curiosity first so that we do things well and we communicate in the way that each person receives best I think is just so critical so thank you so much for
0: sharing that you know one of the questions that I think is is pretty safe is not a question, but an introduction. It's your first time encountering this, this patient, and you can just say, hi, my name's Sherry. I'm here to help you today. My pronouns are she and her. You haven't outwardly asked pronouns, but you have now set the stage so that if this person wants to share their pronouns, they're in a safe place to do so.
1: Now yeah, that's excellent and I agree I think that as we keep setting goals and learn more and and become more educated and find new ways of providing the best care we can provide and in the end that's what every single person within Alberta Health Services wants to do no matter what their role is mm-hmm. is to provide their very best and so I think that when we're looking at patient family centered care if if the patients and the families truly are at the center then that's the opening door for that relationship to begin and just like i go in and have an interaction and receive a, a medication regimen that is specific and unique to me right uh, that's that's the other piece of that care is that emotional and relational piece also needs to be that unique to me.
0: So I think that's why it's particularly a relevant question to ask somebody. What was your last experience like accessing the healthcare system? Because that will ultimately help us identify what the gaps are and how we can close them. And every time we ask a question like that, an open-ended, honest, genuine, sincere question, we are maybe undoing some damage, but even even if we haven't, it gives the, op- the opportunity to learn. And I think that in that really, that is the heart of patient and family-centered care, is we are learning from the patient and we are taking steps with them. They are leading, we are following. This is their journey and we're just on it to support them.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. As this is a new journey for so many and for our system as we continue to learn and educate. Uh, sometimes patient family centered care is difficult because the people in front of us aren't always stories that we know or understand or stories that we've lived and understood. So, you know, mistakes are made in conversation mm-hmm. and in communication. And if a mistake's made in communication, how do we recover? And then how can we do better in the future?
0: Well, and the model that I like to use for this is any time that we do make a mistake or there's been a near miss that our patients need to be informed of harm or possible harm the best way to go about it is with transparency and humility and honesty it's acknowledging what happened sooner rather than later and just owning it and being really direct about it i'm really sorry i just misgendered you i will do better i'll try and do better and usually that's that's all that it takes. And it can be awkward, as any apology can be. But sometimes the best things come out of the most awkward moments. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind. And also it's maybe cheesy, but practice does make perfect. And the more often that we can practice asking people about their pronouns and practice even, oh, I'm sorry, I misgendered you. And even if we really want to get good at it, we can practice with friends and family. Or switch your own gender for a day just so that you can use be used to switching between she and her for uh, people you wouldn't maybe normally use those pronouns for or for yourself, or using they, them, we tend to use they, them really generically. And in a situation where for some reason you don't have somebody's pronouns, but you're getting the sense that generic would be better, you can always revert to they, them, as uh, sometimes a signal of respect can be good if you don't have better information, or if that's the best information that you have. But practice does make perfect. And being able to recover is just being able to say, hey, I, I just messed up. I'm really sorry. And I'm making it better. Right.
1: Thank you. That really helps. I think we need to remember as we're moving forward our own humanity and it's our willingness to learn and grow and come aware of the people before us in our service to our community. And I think it's, you know, what you just said is so important as far as how to own it if we make a mistake and to be willing to learn because we're humans as well. I was just wondering as well, Sherry, if you could share what are some of the barriers that are created when an individual comes into the healthcare system to receive care and they feel like they weren't heard or their values weren't respected or they or they walk away just feeling like who they are and who their identified family members are weren't welcome what are some of the risks to that when they leave the healthcare system
0: well, yeah, I mean, I can I can speak to this. I remember I had to go in for a procedure. I had to leave like the number of, you know, my person, my human that would pick me up once everything was done. And I asked if my wife could come back with me, but we weren't married yet. I think we were just engaged. But the person whom I asked didn't recognize us as this being my my partner or my person and just said, yeah, no, sorry, like nobody can come back, but give me your number. And as soon as you're done, I'll, I'll call her so that you can be picked up. So I was like, okay, cool. That's fair enough. But then when I got back to the waiting room where um, everybody was getting their IVs before the procedure, I was literally the only person there that didn't have their partner with them. And so in, in that moment, you recognize, oh, oh, okay. And so it reinforces like, you know, a few things. Number one, that you are different and you feel other to the term othered. So, so you have that. But then I think there's a lot of like unconscious things that can start to happen or subconscious things. So, you know, you analyze it later and so some of what that means is that, okay, so this means that, you know, my, my family or, you know, the way I live my life isn't as valid or it is not as good or any of these other value statements that we may have grown up with, whether that comes from the institutions that we were a part of, you know, before we came out or realized what our identity was, whether it comes just from cultural norms as a whole or even from, you know, family trauma so you when you have those deep seated traumas kind of validated by the healthcare system that is supposed to be there to support and help and heal you, that can be pretty traumatic in itself. So I think that's why it's so important to just, you know, be be super, super open about all of those things to start off on the right foot, because then you really risk alienating this patient that, you know, maybe this experience just made them feel so othered and alone that they just don't access it the next time. And then people may skip receiving healthcare until things reach sort of crisis level and they may not be deliberately avoiding it being like oh I was misgendered or oh my family wasn't included or oh this person wasn't nice to me so I'm not going to go get a prescription for antibiotics when I need them because that's you know not how psychology works. A lot of the things that hurt us the most deeply, we try to keep down the most deeply. So we're not consciously processing these things. And, and that's how we can sometimes, we can, out of avoidance of being you know, hurt further, we can you know, hurt, hurt ourselves in the process by not accessing the healthcare that we need.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, we have to continually remember the patient in front of us is the expert in their own life. Right. And so we can count and rely on the patients in front of us to guide us and help us and share with us what they need from us. So that that way, when they do receive care, it's the best care. And it's specific to every single individual standing in front of a a healthcare practitioner, no matter who it is. So, So thank you so much for that. So as we move forward, then how do we build capacity as individuals, but also as teams and so on, as we make mistakes, as we're learning together, what are some of the opportunities for learning? What are some of the ways that we can just build capacity amongst ourselves?
0: Good question. And part of it is, I think, recognizing the difference between somebody that is has, has made a mistake or hasn't had you know, the exposure to patients that may be diverse in this regard, and between somebody that is dragging their feet against it deliberately. So there's a big difference between accidentally misgendering someone or stumbling around the issue because they haven't had the experience before, and somebody that is, no, I'm not going to use their preferred pronouns and is just obstinate. We want, an environment that grows allies, recognizing that not everybody today is an ally, and that even allies are on their, their own journey. You know, I like to think of it as the, that most of us uh, want to do the right thing, and we just need the education, the coaching, and the time to practice it to bring those skills out into the real world, just like any other skill that we learn as healthcare practitioners. But also recognizing that, you know, we may have colleagues that we work with that simply are not part of this journey and are committed to never becoming part of it and, you know, just are really don't want to be an ally. Those those people, especially in an organization as large as ours, I mean, they exist throughout society. So it would be uh, naive, I guess, to think that we're never going to encounter them as our, as our colleagues. That that can be some of the most you know difficult situations. So how do you speak up to that How do you do it in front of an audience? What do you do if it uh, means that you're kind of speaking up to power or perceived power? And where do we go from there? And when does, you know, somebody, uh, a colleague misgendering a patient or, you know, not treating their family as family become something where it's uh, a mistake or if it becomes an RLS the reporting and learning system for patient safety. When when do we engage our supervisors and our leadership team to intervene when our own interventions haven't been successful? So all of those questions are super, super difficult, and they're going to vary from situation to situation. But I do think it's really important that we recognize that uh, we may encounter some resistance to this and that that also needs to be confronted and we need to be intellectually honest about that as well. Otherwise, we won't get ahead of it. And then those spots can, can fester. And if you're not there for that next patient interaction that this this person has, and then we're leaving a bunch of people vulnerable for when we, we aren't there to be an ally or an advocate. So knowing when to sort of step in and what steps to take, and that is all very, you know, delicate dance that I think, many of us have struggled with and it's never going to be easy but you know talking about is sort of the first step so knowing when to engage your leadership team and you know just to ask somebody like if you're if a colleague misgenders somebody a couple times and your spidey senses are going off that something doesn't feel genuine about this you know take them aside and be like like how do you feel about this patient i noticed that you're using the wrong pronouns consistently even though i've explained to you that this individual uses she her pronouns or, or whatever it may be or why do you keep referring to this person person's husband or wife as their friend, when you know that this is their husband or their wife, sometimes you have to be, I think, that bold. And, you know, based on that colleague's reaction, I think that helps you know what next steps to take. But if you can't even have that conversation to begin with, then I think sometimes we are left with inaction. And inaction doesn't make our patient at the time or any of our future patients safer. So acknowledging that it's tremendously difficult and even, you know, as an ally and an advocate, we're not going to get it right every time and sometimes it's even just especially if you identify as part of this community and I've encountered this countless times I sometimes just don't have the emotional energy or capacity to deal with it and to take 20 minutes out of my day to try and educate somebody that doesn't want to be educated in that particular moment so it can be really hard
1: I I absolutely agree. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. When you talk about education and sharing and supporting and being an ally, what are some options for true education around this so it doesn't fall on individuals to kind of guess their way through and educate each other? Are are there some learning opportunities available or going to be available? Um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah.
0: we do. We have some great resources in my Learning Link that are that are already available that have to do with diversity and inclusion, and not just in this community, but also the um, Indigenous community as well, and even just you know effective communication. Like so many of those building blocks are right there in my Learning Link that can be taken forward, you know, to any situation, but particularly to these. One project that I'm excited to be working on through Crowd Together is working on some in hospital simulations. That will give healthcare practitioners, like frontline practitioners, the opportunity to do a patient simulation with real actors, which is a tool that uh, nurses and other practitioners already use. Traditionally, um, they've been used, you know, for more, I would say, maybe hard skills or more strictly medical simulations. But uh, there's been some really, really uh, progressive things happening, particularly the one that we're working on right now is for pronouns, to give frontline practitioners the opportunity to practice introducing themselves with their own pronouns, to asking a patient what they need in terms of their pronouns, and then advocating for that patient when they encounter some resistance while delivering care and doing sort of a handoff of care to another practitioner who um, you know, clearly won't use the correct pronouns. And so how do you recover from that? How do you advocate for your patient? You know, in this case, you obviously just don't hand over care to somebody that is not going to care for them. The more we normalize that, the less of a burden it is for people who feel that they need that do need to share their their pronouns every time in order to avoid being misgendered. So when we make that the norm it makes um, other people feel so so welcome and uh, it's appreciated more than I think that we, we ever realize. And also um, ePeople now offers the gender x option which um, it doesn't have every option out there but x in addition to uh, male or female can include other categories such as agender, gender genderqueer, gender intersex, non-binary, and anything else that just isn't kind of captured in the binary male and female that we're traditionally used to seeing. So I, um, I think as an organization, we're, we're doing some really progressive things, progressive just in the idea that we're not using simulations just for some, some very hard sort of hands-on skills, but for these uh, soft skills that can make a world of difference for some of our most marginalized patients.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much. So I'd I'd love it, Sherry, if you could share any resources that you'd recommend our listeners check out when it comes to patient family-centered care in the um, LGBTQ2S plus community and where they can find you if they'd like to follow up as well.
0: Sure. Well, so they can always... um find me at uh, Proud Together, um, but we do have a, a mailing list and uh, so Proud Together is for uh, people. It's a workforce resource group, one of the three that falls under the diversity and inclusion umbrella. The actual URL is https colon backslash backslash, bit.ly backslash proud email and you can go there to uh, be put on the mailing list. And we have a bunch of exciting projects that we're gonna need some volunteers for, including actors in our upcoming simulations. And then of course my learning link, so there's lots of stuff in the diversity and inclusion page. There's a really great course on unconscious bias and we have a lot of great resources in general that can foster learning about Indigenous communities and uh, the communities that of course form uh, our LGBTQ2S plus communities as well. There's so much out there and if you're looking for it, almost every city has a great resource group. So there's lots of good information out there and just that willingness to learn is what's going to carry people the furthest.
1: Perfect. Sherry, I want to thank you so much for being here today and giving your time and your expertise and sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate it and I know our listeners will as well and I look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.